I'm Mary Ambrose, and this is the CG Podcast. Prime Minister Trudeau recently approved two new pipeline expansions for the Alberta tar sands. Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline expands into BC, and Enbridge's Line 3 will go east as far as Montreal. Promising jobs to the beleaguered Alberta economy and pleasing the oil business, the Prime Minister also opened up a belly full of trouble. This is how it was reported in the news, starting with Prime Minister Trudeau. The Government of Canada has approved the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Expansion Project. This pipeline will twin an existing line that has been in operation since 1953. We have also approved the Line 3 Replacement Project. This project replaces over a thousand kilometers of an existing pipeline from Hardesty, Alberta to Gretna, Manitoba. After the announcement, protests began immediately. I have to say, everybody, our work is now in front of us. It is our job now to ensure that the federal government understands under, under no uncertain terms that they do not enjoy the social license for the Kinder Morgan pipeline to be rammed down the throats of Canadians here in British Columbia and to run roughshod over the First Nations that are along the way. Ottawa politicians weighed in. Tom Mulcair, leader of the federal NDP, notes that Trudeau has duped voters. Premier of Alberta, Rachel Notley, however, is triumphant. People in British Columbia trusted Justin Trudeau and a lot of them must be very sad today that they did so because he has betrayed that trust in approving Kinder Morgan with Stephen Harper's totally flawed process. Prime Minister Trudeau is showing some extraordinary leadership today. Our province has been brutally slammed by the collapse in commodity prices and it has been a long dark night for the people of Alberta as a result. Today we are finally seeing some morning light. Chris Varco, business writer with the Calgary Herald, agrees with Notley that this announcement will raise the price of oil, which is better for the Canadian economy. It's going to start to shrink some of the price discount that Canada's heavier oil has been facing in recent years. And this will, more, more importantly, give it access to the, well, you know, the booming Asian marketplaces and get them away from just being landlocked, moving on to the United States. Jeff Rubin disagrees. Jeff Rubin has thought long and hard about this. He's an economist and he's an author. His latest book, his third bestseller, is all about the fossil fuel economy. It's called The Carbon Bubble, What Happens to Us When It Bursts. And that's what he's researching as a senior fellow at CG. The opportunities and the perils of a post-fossil fuel economy. But we're not there yet. Jeff Rubin, Chris Varco writes for a major Alberta paper, and he said this announcement will see a boost in oil prices. Has he drunk the Kool-Aid about what's good for Alberta, and does he believe in oil no matter what? Is he wrong? Well, he's only repeating verbatim what's been the official line as reported in Canadian business media, who's taken its cues from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers who've argued that billions of dollars have been left on the table because the bitumen that's sold from the oil sands, it's called Western Canadian Select, trades at a very sizable discount to the oil prices that 
most listeners identify with the price of oil, West Texas Intermediate or Brent. So, so, so the bitumen is cheaper than re- much regular cheaper, oil. much cheaper, like about today, about fifteen dollars a barrel, and you know, for good reason. Bitumen's not oil. Bitumen has to be upgraded into oil before it can be refined into end products like gasoline and and uh, diesel fuel. And ninety percent of what's scooped out of the ground in the oil sands is is sold un, un, unupgraded, just the raw the raw material. So the mythology is that if we can only get it to Tidewater and only get it to Asian and European markets, that we wouldn't have to accept these deep discounts that U.S. refineries are are forcing. The reality is the exact opposite. If we look at other comparable grades of heavy oil, like Mexico's Maya, it trades at about eight and a half dollars a barrel less in Asia than it does in the Gulf Coast. Europe about three dollars less. So getting it to tidewater, shipping it to Asia, not only fails to reduce the discount that we're getting in North America, but adds about another eight dollars to that discount. And we're not even discussing the environmental impact. No, I'm I'm merely saying it doesn't make any economic sense today. So then we're always told, as you know, that the Canadian economy is built on extracting resources like oil and gas. I mean, we call it the fossil fuel economy. Can we maintain economic security without it? Well, we can't if it doesn't make economic sense. And the problem is that the cost of production on new production is north of $60, $65 a barrel. The price they're getting in North America, let alone what they would get in Asia, is about $35 a barrel. In Asia, maybe $27, $28 a barrel. So is this sustainable? Now, if I was here representing the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. That would be the oil industry to the rest of us. I would be forced to acknowledge that, yes, indeed, Jeff, heavy oil does trade at an even bigger discount in Asia, but that's today. And that these investments in the pipeline and in the oil fields that would fill the pipeline have economic lifetimes of, of decades. And that we can rely on business as usual growth in world oil demand to eventually skate oil prices back on side where this does make economic sense. Of course, those are precisely the time frames in which Canada and over 170 other countries have committed to very significant emission reductions to stabilize global average temperature increases to one and a half degrees. Reductions that will destroy billions of barrels of future oil demand and point to not a growing market, but a contracting world oil market. Because that's sort of the point. That's how we're going to reduce climate change is to stop burning so much fossil fuel. Okay, which people don't seem to want to do. Uh, That if you believe that we're going to come even remotely close to meeting these emission targets, then, you know, the International Energy Agency modeled this years ago in their climate change scenario, world oil demand would peak by about 2020. 
would drop to 80 million barrels a day by 2030, 74 million barrels a day by 2040. That would mean a permanent shut-in of roughly 25% of what's being produced globally which is around 97 million barrels a day. I can't believe you can remember all those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I can barely follow you. So and what c- you're saying is the drop would be at least 25% of That's what we right. have now. And, and you know, oil, the oil sands have five to six times the cost of oil from Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, Iran. It's not going to be those fields that get shut in. It's going to be the high-cost fields that get shut in. And the oil sands next to Arctic is about as high-cost as you get. In that world, not only is there no need for new pipelines, be it Kinder Morgan or Energy East or Keystone, in that world, the oil sands industry would be very hard-pressed to supply the pipelines that already exist. And yet, Trudeau said, this is going to happen anyway. We're going to be seeing all of this. It seems to be like an unstoppable train, the way he talks about, you know, extraction of the tar, uh, bitumen out of the tar sands. And that, in fact, pipelines are more environmentally sound than rail or trucks. Well, rail is obviously a, a very dangerous mode of transport. But, you know, Trudeau saying it's inevitable that's going to happen well, seems to ignore the actions that he and others have committed for emission reductions, because if you follow the implications of that and drill down to what it means for global demand for fossil fuels, oil and coal, then the opposite is true. The world's going to be digging less out, and what gets left in the ground is the most expensive oil, and guess that what? That's the oil sand. And that's exactly where a lot of environmentalists and a lot of other people want the oil to stay is in the ground. And so then let's talk about if it's not a stop, an unstoppable train. One of the things that's trying to stop the further development of fossil fuels is the disinvestment movement. Now, this is where people are trying to pull investment out of uh, the oil industry and the gas industry, and they're asking uh, pension funds and mutual funds to pull their money out. And the idea is it would force the fossil fuel industry to think differently or perhaps cripple it enough so that the uh, renewable energy has a greater chance at the market. Do you think it's having an effect and is it slowing our economy in any way? Well, the fossil fuel divestment movement that you refer to, having started off only about three to four years on U.S. campuses, has quickly grown to the biggest divestment movement in history. And something like 500, over 500 institutions have divested over $5 billion from the fossil fuel wow. industry, including some of the largest public pension plans like CalPERS, the California Employee Retirement System, uh, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which has over $850 billion, and even ironically, the Rockefeller Fund, which was a family fund set up by Rock- the Rockefeller family, the, the owners of Standard Oil, the precursors of Exxon. 
So I think what's changed, though, in the in the course of the last two to three years was that originally the divestment movement was based on moral considerations, much like that the divestment movement that was targeted against apartheid South Africa or against the munitions industry or the tobacco industry. And the argument is that, you know, we shouldn't be providing capital for activities that are going to be catastrophic in terms of their implications for human civilization. We've sh- we've shifted from that to much more vanilla envelope portfolio management that we better divest from fossil fuels because they're going to become stranded assets and the billions that we would invest in fossil fuels are going to have a negative return. So it's gone from soft hearts to hard heads. That's right. And indeed, if you look at what's happened to coal prices or oil prices or LNG prices over the last three to four years, people who have divested from fossil fuel industries haven't been sorry they've made that move. So we've gone from what was originally social activism to sort of mainstream portfolio finance that more and more institutions around the world are recognizing that they have a fiduciary responsibility to their investors to be able to manage climate change risks. Then, without getting too deep into this, because it is a complicated topic, both the Alberta Premier and the Prime Minister are saying that a carbon tax will offset these pipelines. But to me, that sounds like you're going to build a bigger recycling center while you're doubling your production of plastic. Trudeau rejected the third uh, pending pipeline, Northern Gateway, saying, you know, this is untenable. But he's but the carbon tax is uh, well. I would take akin, care of I would say it's akin to you know, having your foot on the accelerator and the brake at the same time. That, you know, measures like phasing out coal, implementing what will be a $50 carbon tax are urgently needed because Canada is nowhere close on track to hitting the emission targets that the Harper government set. And of course, Canada missing emission targets by egregious amounts is nothing new. But, you know, uh, when you overlay the, the kinds of emissions that are going to come from the production growth needed to fill these pipelines. They're effectively self-defeating measures. And also, they, they place the burden of decarbonization. They take it from the largest industrial carbon polluter in the country, the oil sands, and shift it on to everybody else and other regions of the country. And, you know, certain areas of the country, like Ontario and Quebec, have had very significant decreases in emissions and are decarbonizing their economy, while others, Alberta and Saskatchewan, emissions are growing very rapidly. I mean, I think there's a distribution question there because reducing emissions isn't free. No, it certainly isn't. Now, we've talked about the tax burden being shifted with a carbon tax onto the users and off the producers. And the producers get a very significant uh, tax benefits from the government already, don't they? They do. And, and and the royalty rates in Alberta are among the lowest in the OECD. So um, there's a lot to be said about how much this industry has been supported by tax dollars. But I'm just saying that, you know, when you allow emissions to grow at rapid rates in one region of the country in order to hit the emission targets for the whole country the rest of the country has to cut there so much more 
Ontario, for example, closed all of its coal fire plants. That means electricity costs more in Ontario. Okay. The benefits to that have, you know, can have been totally negated by the increase in oil sands emissions. So, you know, I mean, you got different parts of the country going in opposite directions here. The protest initially has been from indigenous people who said they haven't been consulted and don't want these pipelines across their lands and environmentalists who say that this is going to make it impossible for us to read our climate change goals that we signed up to in Paris. Do you think there this opposition is going to be stiff enough? Do you think this there is a chance that these pipelines won't go through? Yeah, I mean, I don't think this is a done deal at all. And the longer that the economics remain unattractive, then I think the more problematic this becomes, okay? Because this is not an incredibly lucrative proposition right now, quite aside from all the environmental risks, doesn't make a whole lot of economic sense. When you overlay the environmental risks, I think there's a very good chance that, uh, that, that the, uh, the twinning of the Trans Mountain will not happen. Jeff Rubin is a senior fellow at CG, where he's currently researching the effects and opportunities in Canada's transition toward a more sustainable economy. That's also the subject of his latest best-selling book. It's called The Carbon Bubble, What Happens to Us When It Bursts. You can find out more about all of this and where to get his book on the CG website, which is www.cigionline.org. That's cgonline.org. CG is the Center for International Governance Innovation. It's an independent, nonpartisan think tank. I'm Mary Ambrose.